Father, we praise you for as the words of the song that were just played for us, for your love, how deep our Father's love for us, how vast, beyond all measure, that you would give your only Son to make a wretch his treasure. Father, these words speak of truth that we know because they're proclaimed in the Scriptures. Father, our entire purpose for gathering is to express our thanks for this greatest gift ever given. For apart from your gospel, God, we would have no cause for such a gathering. We would have no knowledge of the need. We would be as nothing. And Lord, we recognize that there are many today for whom that reality is still their life experience. And yet your deep love that is vast and measureless is there. Your gospel, the only hope that they have. Lord, might our worship today be pleasing. Father, might it be a gospel thanksgiving as we encourage one another in light of life lived in a broken, fallen world. Father, we gather to encourage, to exhort To rebuke, to sit together, not in judgment, but in full recognition that we are yours simply because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This is the deep love of God, so beautifully expressed. And Father, as we continue in this time of worship where your word says you inhabit the praises of your people, Father, in my mind, this time together, might it be as Moses' were as he sat before you in the tabernacle. Father, where the reality of what was outside was completely stripped away. It wasn't removed. It just became as nothing as he sat in your presence. Father, might that be our experience today? Might it have been so to this point? And might it be so moving forward as we now look to your word? Father, would we hear you speak such that we might leave, as did Moses, with hearts aglow, having met with the God of the universe? for this brief time of respite, of celebration and thanksgiving, that which is a foretaste of what will be ours unto eternity. Father, might you use this time 
to open our eyes to who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, this morning we begin a new series that will take us through the month of November and in which we're going to be considering the theme of Thanksgiving as it is so beautifully, lyrically, poetically expressed in the Psalms. Martin Luther once wrote of the Psalms, here we look into the heart of all the saints and we seem to gaze into fair pleasure gardens, into heaven itself, indeed, where bloom the sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all His benefits. On the other hand, where will you find deeper, sadder, more piteous words of mourning than in the Psalms? In these again, we look into the heart of the saints and we seem to be looking into death, yea, into hell itself. How gloomy, how dark it is there because of the many sad visions of the wrath of God. Church, unlike the genres that we've recently seen in the book of Exodus, and then if you were with us before that in the book of James, Psalms is neither a historical narrative nor an epistle. The Psalms are songs. They're poems, metered, often alliterated, even rhyming, not obviously in the English, but in their original Hebrew. And so they capture so beautifully the depth, the riches of emotions reflected in the human experience. And so to this end, the reformer John Calvin wrote of the Psalms, what various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasure. It were difficult to find words to describe. I'm in the habit of calling this book, not inappropriately, the anatomy of all parts of the soul. For not an affection will anyone find in himself an image of which is not reflected in this mirror. Nay, all the griefs, sorrows, fears, misgivings, hopes, cares, anxieties, in short, all the disquieting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated, the Holy Spirit hath here pictured to the life. Church, I, I point out the psalm's poetic nature as we begin for two reasons. First, because I realize this morning we are a diverse lot. And this morning there are certainly some whose hearts reflect the joy, exuberance, and peace that Luther describes as flowers. However, there are surely others here this morning whose gardens, so to speak, are dying. Your flowers wilting. Hearts breaking. We're a varied lot today, and therefore the Psalms speak to us all. They resonate with us all. And then the second reason that I draw attention to the Psalms genre is because of the weight that it bears on our interpretive process, meaning how we seek to understand the truths being communicated. We can't take phrases found in these songs and attribute to them a literal meaning necessarily. And our youth have already seen this together in their in their times together, this principle as they've been studying this wonderful collection of songs together on Wednesday evenings. They've, they've seen the range of ways in which God's truth is communicated in poetic language. And they've heard the cautions that we need to heed as we seek to apply it to our lives. The Psalms require an interpretive approach that is sensitive to style. And the Psalms also reflect a number of themes, all of which were intended to inform the worship of God's gathered people. 
And so today we're going to be looking together at Psalm 69, which was read for us earlier, and where I believe God would have us see the principal point that thanksgiving pleases Him. Church, our God is pleased or glorified by thanksgiving. And so with that said, if your Bibles are open already to Psalm 69, if not, if you'd find that psalm with me. And I would imagine, as Mary even alluded to as she read for us, but as we listened to that psalm earlier, it's likely that our overall sense of this song was that it was rather dark and depressed. And we'll comment on that sense and the movement that took place throughout that song a little bit later on. But right now, I'd like us to read the verses that will serve as our focus this morning. And that is verse 30 through 32. So Psalm 69, verse 30 through 32, which sings, I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. And may God bless these words read publicly this morning. Church, these three verses represent a turning point in this song of David. And there's scholars who argue for different reasons that David could not be the author of this psalm. However, the general consensus of those whom I most respect feel that grammatically, Davidic authorship is definitive. They also note the fact that the Hebrew text attributes it to him, which I think is a point of no little import. And I mentioned this issue of authorship because I believe that it gives us valuable insight into the circumstances that may have inspired its writing. And as we know, David's tenure as king was tumultuous, to say the least. Anointed to rule while Saul was still on the throne, the first seven and a half years of David's reign were in Hebron, two of which were marked by civil war between his followers and the the old courtiers of Saul. And after this spell of insurrection, David was finally anointed king over the United 12 tribes, and he moves his capital to Jerusalem. And throughout this first period, David was constantly at war with neighboring peoples. And then following the establishment of his kingship in Jerusalem, David's warring continued both against the external enemies as well as those within his own house. You may recall how his son Absalom attempted a coup, which resulted in David's temporary displacement. And following his return, despite the appearance of peace that was restored, He still had to deal with the treachery of his closest companions. David's life was marked by misery, loneliness, uncertainty, and heartache. And therefore, all that we heard read in Psalm 69's first 21 verses could have been drawn from any one of a number of periods in the king's life. And this morning, we're not going to speculate on which period or even what event may have led to this heart's cry, but I believe that such an understanding of the author's life circumstances, it makes these verses under consideration this morning so much more poignant. For the circumstances, as we heard them described and read, are such that as the Welsh pastor, theologian, whose name I have a great affinity for, G. Campbell Morgan, he once declared, there is perhaps no psalm in the Psalter in which the sense of sorrow is more profound or more intense. The soul of the singer pours itself out in unrestrained abandonment to the overwhelming and terrible grief which consumes it. Do you feel that way this morning? Do you feel like you're drowning? The water's beginning to creep up your neck? 
Have you been sinking in a mire of self-pity and isolation? Do you feel abandoned by everyone without a friend in the world and betrayed by those who had called themselves such before? David did. And yet despite this horrific hurting, we read these words. Let me get to verse 30. I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful and powerful? Despite all that David has described, he declares, I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. And I'd like for us to set the first half of this verse to the side for just a moment and fix our attention on the phrase and glorify Him with thanksgiving for the obvious reason that the second part contains the word thanksgiving. But I'd also like to do this so that in light of the depth of David's grief, we might see this morning what thanksgiving is, how it works, and why. What thanksgiving is, how it works, and why. And then we'll return to praise God's name in song. And so what is thanksgiving? And as it's employed in this phrase, we see that it is the response that glorifies or exalts God or magnifies God. Our NIV, if that's the translation you have, renders the original as glorifies. If you have the ESV, it offers magnify, while the Holman reads exalts. Each of these terms communicates what is the result of thanksgiving, that which it accomplishes. David writes, I will glorify him with Thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is the means by which we glorify or magnify God. Now, the original term that was used here and that's rendered glorify or magnify or exalt may be understood in one of two senses. The first uh, is to make something appear greater than it actually is. This is the form of magnification or exaltation that we see evidenced when we use, say, a microscope. Looking through the lens we're enabled to see cells, particles, specks, all of which normally are invisible to the human eye. But the microscope magnifies them such that they appear far greater, larger than they actually are. The second sense of this term is to make something that may seem small look as grand as it actually is. Anybody who's ever had the opportunity to look through a telescope at the stars, knows this reality of glorification or magnification, exaltation, as the telescope takes something that is vast in reality, but which appears to be barely visible, and it enables us to see just how incredible it is. And thus, when David writes, I will glorify him with thanksgiving, he doesn't mean that he's going to take a small God and make him appear to be greater than he actually is. No, what he means is that he's going to take a gloriously, eternally omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, we could go on, God, and make him look as big as he really is. And so church, hear this truth this morning. In light of all of David's circumstances, he and we are called to be telescopes not magnifiers. We are not, church, we are not tasked with the odious responsibility of trying to sell a small God by making supersized claims. The gospel isn't some, some message that only works if we sugarcoat it, softening some of the language so that it doesn't offend. No, the God of the Bible, whom we exalt above all, 
is beyond our capacity to truly, fully communicate Him. He has no equal, as He declared in Isaiah 45, verse 5. And none to whom He may be compared, according to Psalm 40, and verse 5. We are not to be magnifiers of God. We are to be telescopers. It says, one pastor theologian explains, there is nothing and nobody superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make His greatness begin to look as great as it really is. So the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as He really is. Church, we are to be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. What's thanksgiving? What's thanksgiving? It's the means by which we show a watching world just how amazing our God is. And one would think, one would think that with God's reality as superior as it is, that all would acknowledge Him, right? As the Apostle Paul declares, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that men and women are without excuse. God's greatness ought to be plain to everyone, right? Unfortunately, Paul continues, although they knew God, they neither glorified that same word, magnified, exalted, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were hardened. What should be clear to all is not. Our sin has blinded our minds so that we are incapable of acknowledging and unwilling to admit the beauty of God. We can look at a sunset, friends. We can study the migratory paths of butterflies, measure the depth of caverns, and even weigh a newborn giraffe and fail to see what each instance proclaims as David captured it in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display, display what? Knowledge. Friends, this, how, how easy it is for us to witness scenes such as David describes and miss the glory of which they sing. Why? Because our ears and our hearts are just too dulled due to sin. Now, I'm not proposing that only exaggerated expressions of wonder reflect appreciation for what David is describing here. In other words, we don't have to go outside and geek out when we see a tree just to express our appreciation of God's wonder. I had a friend who did that. And a dear friend in college, Josh, close friend, and he had a sensitivity to God's glory in nature that I often missed. I would regularly see Josh just standing out in the open with a smile on his face as he scrutinized something, a flower, a tree, blade of grass. Josh's was a unique appreciation and articulation regarding God's glory. No, we're not all as attuned as Josh was. The point is, though, church, unless God opens our heart's eyes, we will never see this glory. For this reason, we must pray, beg that God would save our friends, our family, our neighbors, all of those who do not know Him, for you can't be a telescope, and display the greatness of something you've never seen. And then for us, church, who have seen Him, 
who've been saved by it. We must pray as David prayed in Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. For we who are so prone to forget, we can't glorify what slipped from our minds. So what's thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is the means by which we glorify God. So how does thanksgiving work? We've answered our initial question regarding what thanksgiving is. Now I believe we need to see how it works. And the answer is right orientation. Thanksgiving works by rightly orienting our lives to God and His glory. And so let me explain. David begins Psalm 69 by crying out in despair. And that the situation that he's describing here, as we've noted, is like unto drowning. And as I studied this section of this song, the Lord brought to my mind another passage of Scripture in which there's a similar trial described. And where I believe both the cause and the response of the one portrayed mirror that of David. And that text is found in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 14. Matthew 14. And in this passage, one I would imagine is familiar to many, Jesus is in the region that surrounds the Sea of Galilee. And following the miracle of feeding 5,000 people, he packs his disciples into a boat, has them go ahead of him across the sea while he heads off by himself to pray. And between, we're told, the fourth watch of the night, which would have been around 3, between 3 and 6 a.m., the disciples are caught in this horrific storm when who should come walking towards them? On the water, but Jesus. And as you likely recall, the disciples freak out, rightly so, but Jesus calms them and he says, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. At which point Peter cries out, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. So we remember the story, right? Peter promptly responds, or Jesus rather, and he says, come. Peter steps out and he begins to walk. And at first he does, doesn't he? The man actually walks on the water. But then he begins to look around. And so we read in verse 30 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. In light of the points we noted at the start regarding the translation of poetry, I'm not suggesting that there is a direct correlation here between David's descriptions and Peter's experience. Peter was literally sinking in a lake. David is merely using the metaphor of drowning to describe his trials. However, there is a truth here that I believe may be drawn from, applied to both texts, and it's tied to Peter's orientation. As long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, Peter did what? He walked on water. He did that which we know, scientifically speaking, is impossible. No one can walk on water. What Peter did as he obeyed Jesus was supernatural. However, the moment that his gaze left the master, he began to sink. I believe, I believe that thanksgiving serves to orient our eyes to God. And that, that's the point that I believe these two distinct passages share. Thanksgiving, which as we've just defined it, glorifies, magnifies, exalts God. Thanksgiving works by orienting our eyes to God. Because if you think about it, just in terms of the science and the imagery that we've employed to this end, just think about it. Can we magnify something towards which our telescope is not oriented? 
And the answer is obvious. So to magnify God, we have to be focused upon God. And when we're focused upon God, then everything else falls into its rightful place, doesn't it? Church, how often do we find ourselves, like Peter, David before him, drowning? Our circumstances threatening to overwhelm us. And it might be that you feel that way to some degree this morning. And maybe it's related to school, work family, but as you look at the winds of culture and circumstance raging around you, the pending deadlines or anticipated requirements, you realize on your own, you're going to drown. Hear the gospel's truth this morning. You never could walk on water. You never could. Peter never stepped out of that boat, church, in his own strength. Everything he did was empowered by God. And the moment he took his eyes off of Jesus, Peter knew it. Have you taken your eyes off of Jesus? Thanksgiving leads our eyes back to Christ. This is why David cried out similarly in Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For David's life, his realities, his, as he saw them around him, it didn't make any sense. As he surveyed the apparent injustice and hurt that threatened to drown him again, he despaired and he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me until, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. When David's gaze returned to the Lord, everything once again made sense. So where are your eyes looking this morning? Are you staring at the wind and the waves? Are you looking at what appears to be impossible, realizing that you can't pull off the impossible? If so, I pray that you'll start giving thanks to God. Because as you do, I can guarantee that you'll be reminded of just how weak you are, but how strong He is of how broken you are, but how he's the healer, and of how inconsistent you are, but how he never changes. How does Thanksgiving work? It works by rightly orienting our lives to God in all of his glory. So Thanksgiving is the means by which we glorify God. It works by rightly orienting our lives to God in all of his glory. And then our third question, why? Why does thanksgiving glorify God? And I believe as one pastor theologian wrote, the answer is simple. Givers are more glorious than receivers. Benefactors are more glorious than beneficiaries. It's like we talked about with our kids. When we thank others, we're acknowledging their value. Expressions of thanks by a receiver display the greater worth of the giver. And so when we thank God, we are displaying our recognition of his infinite worth over ourselves. It's simple, right? Easy, even. And yet I'm amazed at how difficult this can be. Do you know what some of the most difficult words are to say in the entire human language? In my house, we struggle with a few. I'm sorry and thank you. Those are the hardest words to force over clenched teeth and tight lips when you're angry, aren't they? And when my children are, are playing happily and everyone's getting their way, then we're quick to express those sentiments. But the moment that our hearts are hurt and we get irritated, to say thank you means that we have to magnify 
glorify. Someone that we'd rather demean. We don't want to glorify our sister or our brother, even our mom or dad. We want to knock them down a few pegs. And friends, at one time, and maybe even still this morning for some, we could not give thanks to God. We couldn't glorify God because that would mean giving away that which we desperately desired to keep for ourselves. In Psalm 35, David declares how a, such a seemingly innocent act that of giving thanks to God has in fact divided humanity into two categories. He writes in verse 30, 27 of, verse, of chapter 35, May those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and gladness. May they always say, the Lord be exalted. Same word, magnified, glorified. And then David contrasts these with another group who exalt, or again, same word, glorify, magnify themselves over me. In other words, despite the great variety that we see across our globe today, represented by cultures and ethnicities, despite the rainbow as that term is used. Unfortunately, it's come to mean things different than what God had intended. But despite the variety that we see, there are only, church, two groups of people whose differences from one another are of any eternal significance. It's those who glorify God and those who glorify themselves. Because the heart of the problem is people's hearts, right? This is the source of ingratitude, the desire for self, over others. The love of self. My love for myself prevents me from giving glory to any but me. And we see this expressed there in our psalm, Psalm 69, verse 31, where David continues singing, this will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns. What David is acknowledging here is that an expensive physical sacrifice will not please God over genuine, heartfelt thanksgiving. Because for one, God doesn't need stuff. He already owns everything. As he declared in Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't, the world is mine. All that's in it, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. In other words, rather than assuming the role of a giver by burning your bulls, demonstrate the posture or the of a recipient by sacrificing your pride and simply offering God thanks. Do you have a heart that thanks God? Friends, the reality is that apart from God's grace in regeneration, we can't. Our hearts are cold, dead. The prophet Ezekiel describes this reality in his book, chapter 36, where he informs Israel that their hearts were as stone. The people had profaned God's name, They'd rejected his laws. They'd behaved in ways offensive to God's sensibilities, despite the fact that they all went to church. They, they regularly worshipped and offered sacrifices. The problem wasn't the outward signs. It was the inward realities. The people's hearts were dead, as Paul describes it in the New Testament, in transgressions and sins. They could abide by religious rules for the sake of appearance or to pacify their family, but it meant absolutely nothing on the inside. In their hearts, they remained givers towards God. And he was the lucky recipient of their time if they chose to worship. He was the lucky recipient of their talents if they opted to serve. And he was the lucky recipient of their money if they chose to be faithful and tithe. Friends, such giving 
does not glorify God. Does not glorify God because it doesn't flow from a heart of flesh. And that's the heart that Ezekiel describes as coming only from God when he sprinkles clean water on you and you will be clean. God says, I will cleanse you from your impurities, all of them, and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and, and put a new spirit, his spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will give you my spirit and he will be in you and move you to follow my decrees. Has God brought about this regenerating work in your life? Or are you simply performing? Are you fulfilling the role of a giver with God as your recipient? The gospel is God's ordained means of performing this heart surgery. The Apostle Paul makes clear that it's through the heard word of this gospel that God enables people to believe. And we've all heard the gospel this morning. That that is in the beginning a holy God created people to live in a relationship with Him that glorified, magnified, exalted Him. But people sinned. They didn't want to thank God for who He is and all that He'd done. And so people became separated from the God in whom is life. Death, as we know, entered creation. And so this is the condition that faces every single person born. We're all separated from God. And we sense this dissatisfaction, whether we are able to articulate it or not, as we try to salve this empty feeling that we have within our hearts. We try love, we try money, we try distractions of all kinds, but they all fail, inevitably will leave us empty. Why? Because people cannot fix their primary problem. And this church is why God sent Jesus, the greatest act of giving ever displayed. God came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he repaired our broken relationship because only he could restore what was broken. He took our punishment of death deserved for our failure to obey. Upon himself, he died in our place and then rose from the dead so that whoever repents of their sin, whoever believes, whoever gives thanks to God with all their heart will not die but be reconciled to God. Do you believe this today, church? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, we are promised you will be saved. The gospel is God's power to save all who believe. Now I pray this morning that everyone knows this reality, has been converted. But if you're wondering what that means and what a second birth even references as Jesus expressed it to Nicodemus in John 3, then I would love to speak with you this morning. Don't leave without getting answers, at least initiating a discussion about these life eternally significant matters because not a one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Not a one. But then church, for we who have, may we thank God for this brings Him glory. And this leads us then to the practice that was described in the first half of verse 30, which, if you recall, we set aside right at the start. And that's to praise God's name in song. So to this end, I'd like us to stand. And I'd like us to praise God's name, to glorify Him. We will glorify our God, for He is our Redeemer, He's our Creator, He's our Sustainer. Church, as we sing this final song, would we consider all the many things for which we're thankful, and may we seek to thank Him not only in our times of individual worship, but may we also in the assembly, as David describes it here in Psalm 69, as we, the people, are gathered together, may we sing, may we who seek God, as David describes it, see 
and be glad. May your hearts live this morning, church, as we glorify our Father. Would you sing with me as we close? Mm -hmm.